0: from the nation magazine this is start making sense political talk without the boring parts i'm john weiner if the democrats are going to retake the house in next year's midterm elections they're going to need to reverse restrictions on voting rights ari berman will have our update on the Supreme Court's important decision on voting in North Carolina, and on Trump's so-called Election Integrity Commission. And maybe you heard the news, Trump is traveling abroad for the first time as president this week. He started in Saudi Arabia over the weekend. We'll have comment from Joshua Holland. First up, Trump submitted his budget to the House on Tuesday. For that story, we turn to George Zornick. He's the nation's Washington editor. George, welcome back. Hi, thanks for having me. I guess we should start with the good news. Trump has managed to balance the budget even though he's increased spending on the military and on the border and does not cut Medicare or Social Security payments. It's a miracle. Uh, How did he do it?
1: Well, I think the short answer is that he didn't do it. You know, they're, they're using this very, even I think to people who have been watching Trump for a while, a very kind of shocking and basic misdirection about how his budget claims to achieve balance. They assume that there is a, a $2 trillion increase in revenue through economic growth. And that's something that they assign to the magic of his tax cut plan, which is sort of assumed into this budget document. Um, this tax cut plan, according to them, will will create 3% growth because of all the wealth it will create. That's out of line with with literally every... Fed analysis or outside um, independent analysis of how much growth could be expected.
0: Yeah, let me just inject here. Trump's budget assumes we'll have 3% economic growth for the next 10 years. Today, our economy has 2% growth. So he is assuming that the economy will grow 50% faster uh, than it's growing this year and that this will continue for 10 years. You say that that's, uh, what should we call it, unrealistic?
1: Yeah, it's very unrealistic. It's, it's first of all, we know that the the economic method that he is prescribing here, in other words, massive, massive tax cuts for the already wealthy and for corporations will trickle down to everyone else in the economy and create this kind of growth. Um, it's not it's no longer theoretical whether this works. We know that it doesn't from when Reagan tried it, from when George W. Bush tried it. Almost every economic analysis, uh, serious analysis you apply to it would say that this is basically phony.
0: So why not assume that we will have four percent economic growth? How about five percent economic growth if, if we're uh, if we're projecting on the basis of the benefits we're going to get from Trump's presidency?
1: Why stop well, at three? Know, uh, that's exactly right. I, I think they actually reverse engineered this. I think they figured out the level of of tax cuts that they wanted to pursue, and then sort of you know reverse engineered the math to okay, well, what level of growth. Would show that this would pay for itself, and and you know, ta-da! There's they've they found a way to balance it.
0: I started out by saying that he was able to achieve this remarkable balancing of the budget without cutting Social Security payments, but actually, that's not correct, is it?
1: No, not at all. It, you know, there's this ridiculous two-step where the Trump administration and even some reporters who I think should know better are saying, "Well, yeah, Trump is is cutting SSDI, but he's not cutting Social Security." Well, SSDI stands for Social Security Disability Insurance. It's it's very clearly part of the program. It's true that it it's not really the part that perhaps a man on the street might think of. In other words, the social security you get when you turn sixty-five that you've paid into. But it's absolutely a, a, a critical component of the program. And and what Trump is really doing here is 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 very nasty. And I should say Trump and Ryan, because it's it's clear that the House GOP is in line with a lot of uh, what this budget has produced, what, what Trump is doing here is first starting with the massive increases in defense spending, which will go to defense contractors and, and tax cuts for the wealthy. And then he's finding, well, where can, else can I cut to at least have this semblance of balance? And if you look at Social Security, it's really interesting because he he does take a pass on cutting the old age retirement plan. He does take a pass on most Medicare cuts, but he does go after Social Security disability insurance, and he does go heavily after Medicaid to the point where it would be cut by almost 50% over 10 years. So what he's really doing here is is finding the people who have basically no political constituency, the, the weakest among us, not just in terms of, of their health or their, their earnings, but the weakest in terms of in the political ecosystem, the people who have the least ability to organize and push back against cuts, and he's ripping the funds from them. I mean, the SSDI, people on disability, don't have a highly organized political coalition. They don't give a lot of money to politicians. This is obviously in contrast to people on Social Security and Medicare. Yeah. So it's really just kind of gross to to find sort of the weakest and least amongst us in this political and and economic ecosystem and, and take their benefits in order to fund these massive tax cuts.
0: Well, it may look cruel to us to take away disability payments from people who are disabled, but Trump does have a message to those people. If you're on disability, the Trump message is, get a job, go to work. Uh, And I think they've been quite open about that. There's too many people on disability who are faking it, who aren't really disabled. How many disabled people could get a job?
1: Very, very, very few. You know, the United States has one of the most um, restrictive disability benefit programs in the entire developed world. Second, actually, only to South Korea, and that's according to OECD stats. Sixty percent of the people who apply for SSDI are are denied, even after this long, lengthy appeals process, which can take years. So, you know, a majority of people who, who go after it don't get it. Anyone who has dealt with getting SSDI or had a family member who's dealt with it knows that it is not some kind of freeloading system where there's all these, these people with a sore toe who are sitting in their recliner at home not working.
0: The Trump budget also proposes massive cuts in food stamps, cutting, I think it's more than 25% of the funding of food stamps over the next decade. There are 42 million Americans get food stamps. He's proposed, have I got this right, Trump
1: calls for zeroing out federal funding for subsidized school lunches? Yeah, that's right. And in tandem with the snap cuts, it's, it's really kind of horrifying, even for how we're used to describing Republican budgets. I mean, Free school lunches and and particularly SNAP benefits, the food stamps, are really sort of the safety net of last resort for a lot of people. It's it's people who even after they receive, whether it's unemployment insurance, disability insurance insurance, any kind of welfare aid, that they literally do not have enough food enough money to buy food. Like it's it's what prevents people from starving to death in this country. And so cutting out at that bottom rung is in, is in a clear and immediate danger to people who rely on this to get the food that they need
0: well trump has an answer to the people who are criticizing the cuts in food stamps the same answer is disability you're going to lose your food stamps get a job he says you should you should work you should work to make money to, to buy food what's the evidence about working for people who are on food stamps now
1: yeah, I mean that that may sound well on Fox News, but it bears no resemblance to the reality of people who actually need food stamps. There already are requirements that you cannot receive them for more than three months if you're not uh, working twenty hours a week. And again, the idea that people are out there just choosing not to work so they can receive what is really a, a paltry amount of food stamps. I mean, this is not steak and lobster money. it's It's get to the end of the week with hopefully enough sustenance that you need.
0: I saw a quote from Representative Mark Meadows. He's the guy who's the chair of the House so-called Freedom Caucus, Republican from North Carolina. He said, cutting meals on wheels, even for some of us who are considered to be fiscal hawks, may be a bridge too far.
1: It's easy to be a deficit hawk when you're out of power because you can just say, hey, the government spends too much money. They're spending your money. We need to cut, cut, cut. We need to put caps on the federal budget and sequester and all this. But You know, at this point, Republicans are sort of the dog that caught the car because they now have the power to do this. And all of a sudden, all these cuts that they want to make are going to harm people back in their districts.
0: One footnote to our discussion here. I see that Trump's budget includes a request for $19 billion over 10 years for a new program to provide six weeks of paid leave to new parents. This is victory for Ivanka.
1: It's victory for Ivanka, and it's it, it's not nothing. I mean, it 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 wouldn't be the worst thing in the world if this plan went into place, but it's it's far less than what just about anybody estimates is needed to to supply real paid family leave. Now, when she originally proposed this, it was only women, so not fathers, um not adoptive parents, not you know, if you had two fathers in a household, wouldn't apply to any of them. Now since then they've they've grandfathered in, fathers as well, though they're not making it clear whether they will extend it to gay marriages. But in either case, I think if you want to take one kind of small silver lining from that, which is that even though elsewhere in the budget they're proposing brutal, brutal cuts, I think it's true that that the organizing around this issue has shifted to the point where even a Trump White House and and some Republicans in Congress think that this is a good idea. And it's really a story of an organizing victory. I mean, I'm sure you remember, but there have been paid family leave activists in in state capitals and in D.C. for years now, stretching back to the first Obama administration and and elevating an idea kind of out of nowhere that what people weren't really talking about to the mainstream. That's not to validate that Trump has put forward a a good and and full-throated proposal. As to the scale that's needed, but it does show that the ground has sh- has shifted on this, and it's largely in part to activists on the ground.
0: Well, every budget is a political statement. It's it seems notable that Trump released his budget when he was out of the country. He's not even here to explain it, to defend it, to present it. It seems like he's not really that interested in his own budget. And I think Republicans are, are probably asking themselves, well, why should I defend it if the president himself is is uh, off in other
1: countries uh, meeting world leaders? Well, you know, that, that's a really interesting point, because this, this is not the budget that, that Trump ran on. I mean, I think what terrified a lot of progressives in the summer and fall of last year, and particularly when Trump won, was that perhaps he had unlocked some new governing coalition where he could say, you know what, I reject The Paul Ryan, Mitt Romney austerity politics that have been pushed by the Republican Party for years now. I will not cut Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, which he specifically mentioned. I think the government should basically provide for people, but of course, just not those people. And we know who those people are, you know, immigrants, people in in certain communities, as Trump would phrase it, sort of like a a white privilege socialism there was a lot of fear and a lot of think pieces about, well, has Trump unlocked this really potent political combo? You know, What if he comes out of the gate in January of 2017 with a massive deportation plan and also an infrastructure bill that will split Democrats right down the middle, like a jobs package where they have to decide, well, do we want to fund these jobs or do we want to, you know, is there a danger in validating this this basically white supremacist president? Well, that that's a battle that Trump entirely sidestepped. And this budget returns exactly to and, in in fact, is like a radical version of what Paul Ryan and and Mitt Romney and most Republicans have been pushing for so long. You know, massive, massive cuts to the safety net, amping up tax cuts for the wealthy, amping up defense spending. So he, he sort of brilliantly hacked our political system and won an election and then just immediately disregarded it. So it's a good question. What, why isn't he here defending this budget? How much does he care about it? Literally, how much does he even understand what a big reversal it is from what he campaigned on? George Zornick,
0: he wrote about Trump's cruel and unusual budget for the com. George, thanks for talking with us today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: The Democrats' number one priority is retaking the House next year in the midterm elections. That seems possible. They need 24 seats, and 23 Republicans are running in districts that Hillary carried last year. But in order to win those elections, Democrats need to be able to vote. And, of course, the Republican strategy for years has been to restrict the right to vote. they made a lot of progress with that campaign. The fight continues. And for an update, we turn now to our man on voting rights, Ari Berman. He wrote the award-winning book, Give Us the Ballot, the Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. He's a senior contributing writer for The Nation magazine and a fellow at The Nation Institute. He also writes for The New York Times, Rolling Stone, The Guardian. He's a frequent guest and commentator on MSNBC and NPR. We heard him last week on Fresh Air with Terry Gross. So, Ari Berman, welcome
2: back. Thanks, John. Good to talk to you again.
0: Well, we've said here many times that when it comes to voting rights, North Carolina has become the new Mississippi, the worst state in the union for black people who want to vote. But there was big news from the Supreme Court on Monday uh, about voting in North Carolina. Uh, Please explain.
2: Yeah. Many North Carolinians are not too happy about becoming known as the new uh, Mississippi. For many years, they were trying to stay ahead of uh, South Carolina, yeah. um, but such such are the days. So there was a very important decision uh, from the Supreme Court on Monday, which upheld a lower court decision that struck down two of the state's congressional districts as unconstitutional racial gerrymanders. Now, what was significant about these decisions were, first off, it was written by Justice Elena Kagan, but the 5-3 decision was joined by Justice Clarence Thomas, who does not usually vote uh, with the liberal justices. I think that, that is uh, fair to say. Um, the second thing that's significant about it is that uh, North Carolina is one of the most extremely gerrymandered states. So if you look at just the the composition of the state of North Carolina, there's 13 congressional districts. And before the 2010 election, there was an eight to five Democratic majority. Uh, After the 2010 election, after the Republican redistricting plans went into effect, the state became 10 to three Republican dominated in the congressional delegation. So wow. that's a huge shift yeah. of number of seats. And you're talking about a state that's basically 50-50. Um, it narrowly went to Trump. It just elected a Democratic governor, but it has a supermajority Republican legislature and it has uh, 10 Republican members of Congress, largely because of gerrymandering in that state.
0: I want to ask about the vote here a little bit. The vote was five to three. Clarence
2: Thomas joined the liberal majority. Any idea why? Well, I don't think Clarence Thomas is a fan of racial gerrymandering at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes the racial gerrymandering that he's criticized has helped Democratic candidates. Sometimes it's led to um, majority-minority majority districts under the Voting Rights Act that allowed African-Americans to be elected for the first time. Um, and Thomas has opposed those kind of districts as well. But what happened here is really interesting. North Carolina Republicans took two districts that were not majority black congressional districts, but that had elected black Democrats for 20 years. So African-Americans had held these seats for over 20 years. Um, But what they did is they moved more African-American voters into these districts, the 1st District and the 12th District, even though the black Democrats who represented these seats didn't want any more black voters in these districts. And the reason they did this is because North Carolina Republicans wanted to make the rest of the districts more white, more conservative, and more Republican. And what the Supreme Court said and what Clarence Thomas agreed to is that race was the predominant reason that justified doing this, and, and that was, uh, unconstitutional. And and that's why they struck these two districts down.
0: Well, one of the most interesting things about uh, this case, it's about racial gerrymandering, but there had actually been a trial in North Carolina with uh, testimony, witnesses, evidence. Uh, Tell us about the trial.
2: Yeah, there, there was a trial. The, the lower court struck down these districts. They ruled that it was an, an unconstitutional racial gerrymander. Uh, that, that opinion was upheld by the Supreme Court. And, and I wrote in my Nation piece about this remarkable exchange between Congressman Mel Watt, who represented the 12th Congressional District of North Carolina for 20 years, and, and Bob Rucho, who was a Republican state senator. And Ruscio said to Watt that he had to make his district um, more African-American um, because that, that's how it would pass muster under the Voting Rights Act. And, and, and he had to sell this to the African-American com- community. And Watt told him, this is ridiculous. Number one it's not mandated under, under the Voting Rights Act that you have to make the district 50% African-American. Secondly, African-Americans are going to laugh at you when you tell them this. And third, I'm already winning 65% of the vote here. So I don't need any more help. I don't need a district that I'm going to win 80% of the vote in. I mean, I think that's what's happened... Throughout the South, is that African American Democrats are already winning re election. They don't need the number of black voters increased artificially in their districts because what they realize is going to happen is that African American voters are going to have less influence in other districts. Not only that, But white Democrats, who they join in coalition with, are going to lose. And that's what's happened in North Carolina and other southern states. So you you may have one or two African-American Democrats left, but the rest of the state's controlled by white Republicans. And therefore, Democrats broadly in the African-American community in particular, which identifies strongly with the Democratic Party, has no power as a result. So
0: with Clarence Thomas, the liberals won five to three. Uh, if Clarence Thomas had voted the way he usually does, it would have been four to four. Uh, what's yeah. the difference in this case between five to three and four to four?
2: Five to three means it sets a precedent. So if it's four to four, they deadlock. The lower court decision stands, but there's no precedent that's set. Five to three means there's a precedent. And the important precedent that I think is set here is that what North Carolina argued and what Justices Alito Roberts and Kennedy argued, uh, was that North Carolina was just doing this for political reasons, that if they happened to segregate African-American voters into a limited number of districts, they were just doing it to benefit the Republican Party. What's wrong with that? After all, the Supreme Court has not invalidated political gerrymandering, gerrymandering that's done for political reasons, only racial gerrymandering, gerrymandering that's done for racial reasons. And what Justice Kagan said, and Justice Thomas signed on to this, is that in a state like North Carolina where 90% of African-Americans vote Democratic, you can't separate race and party. And this is very significant because the Supreme Court has been unwilling to strike down political gerrymanders. Well, now, if you can say the political gerrymanders are just racial gerrymanders or vice versa, then you might be able to strike down more of these Republican-drawn gerrymandered maps in the future.
0: And there's one other news development on the voting rights front that we want to get your uh, opinions about, and that is Trump has established what he calls an election integrity commission. Of course, who could be against integrity in elections? It's got to be good. Tell us about that commission.
2: <laughs> well, it's 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 completely ridiculous that we even have an election integrity, an Orwellian-named election integrity um, commission, because this is predicated on the idea that Donald Trump tweeted that three to five million people voted illegally. And there's absolutely no evidence of that. There's no evidence of widespread voter fraud in American elections. It's ridiculous to set up a presidential commission to study it. If we should set up a presidential commission to study the voting system, we should be studying the fact that there was widespread voter suppression in the last election. That in states like Wisconsin, in in North Carolina, in other states, um, thousands of people who tried to vote were not able to. And that's what we should be focusing on. That was a real problem. If the election was tainted, it was tainted by that, um, not by uh, a delusional president believing that millions of people voted illegally because he happened to lose the popular vote. Um, And so, but what I'm really concerned about here is that The establishment of this commission is both going to keep alive the myth that voter fraud is widespread, and also it's going to create policy recommendations, both for the Congress and for states, uh, recommending policies that will make it harder to vote. Things like more voter ID laws, um, cutting early voting, making it harder to register to vote, purging the voting rules. We're going to see more of this stuff, and it's going to have the presidential imprimatur on it, and, and that's what makes me nervous.
0: The vice chair of Trump's election integrity commission uh, alongside the vice president, Mike Pence, is a man named Chris Kobach, who I am not that familiar with. Who exactly is Chris Kobach?
2: Chris Kobach is the secretary of state of Kansas. He's really been the leading figure in the Republican Party uh, that has pushed uh, the idea that voter fraud is widespread, and he's also pushed um, new voting restrictions like strict voter ID laws, like proof of citizenship laws for voter registration, where you need your passport, your birth certificate, or naturalization papers to be able uh, to register. So he's been a leading figure within the Republican Party um, of of this new movement to restrict voting rights, and and the fact that he is vice chair of this of this commission, and for all intents and purposes, is running it. Um, I think sort of tells you all you need to know.
0: The midterm elections are going to be uh, in about, uh, what, 18 months, November uh, 2018. Uh, in in terms of Washington politics, that's right around the corner. Is this uh, commission going to be able to complete its work and uh, and do anything that will affect the midterm elections in November 2018?
2: Well, apparently they're going to make Recommendations to the states and to the Congress. Now, I don't know what's going to happen I'm with those re- recommendations, but I think it's important to recognize that uh, voter suppression efforts are already going on in Republican controlled states right now. In 2017 alone, there have been 99 new voting restrictions introduced in 31 states. So, this is already happening. And it's just going to get worse with the establishment of this commission. So I think some stuff could happen before 2018, but I would really look to um, 2020, uh, when conveniently President Trump will presumably uh, run for re-election if he makes it that long. Um, that I think that will be the real thing they're looking at here.
0: Ari Berman, read him at the nation.com Thank you, Ari. Thanks a lot, John. Donald Trump, maybe you heard the news, went to Saudi Arabia last weekend. For comment, we turn to Joshua Holland. He's a contributor to The Nation magazine, a writing fellow at The Nation Institute, and host of Politics and Reality Radio. Joshua Holland, welcome back. Hey, John. Thanks for having me. Well, this was Trump's first trip overseas. He gave a speech to the Saudis. It was not one of those campaign rally speeches of his. This was one that had been carefully written, five different speech writers, vetted by uh, more communications experts. Trump's only job was to read this speech out loud. Uh, how, <laughs> how did he do he did not embarrass
3: himself too terribly in the reading of the speech. It was kind of a slow speech, I thought. There was the image of uh, of some of his, his cabinet members falling asleep during the speech. I found it a little bit halting, the delivery. But it it was remarkable the degree to which it was a departure from his demonization of Muslims, which has been a consistent through story of his campaign and early presidency, I don't think we should be surprised by that, given that you don't go to Saudi Arabia and say that you think Islam hates us or uh, recall a, a fake story about General Pershing using bullets dipped in pig's blood in the Philippines. So I think that we could have expected that. And of course, he was there to to get not only the plaudits he was received with a uh, very glitzy uh, reception, a reception fit for literally fit for a king, but to cut a, a huge mammoth weapons deal with the Saudi government, and also they it appears that the Saudi uh, government funneled some money into Ivanka's new new organization that's going to help women entrepreneurs, and they're also he arranged an investment in u.s infrastructure i think that's a little bit fuzzy how that's actually going to play out we know that some of that is going to a hedge fund that's actually run by a supporter of his so it's 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 unclear how the infrastructure investment piece is going to go but it was a remarkable departure from existing u.s policy towards the region the obama administration had attempted successful with some success to to get past some of the worst issues with the Iranian regime and uh, was trying to kind of distance itself somewhat from Saudi Arabia. Trump, in his speech, made it clear that there was going to be a significant realignment and that the United States was actually going to adopt the Saudi view of the region, the regional dynamics, and uh, that includes. And I think this is noteworthy—a uh, uh, clear signal that the Trump regime is is not concerned with niceties about human rights or democracy promotion, et cetera, et cetera. That was uh, that was the first stop of of a nine day tour, and Trump has certainly seemed exhausted. He actually had to cancel an event in Riyadh uh, unexpectedly, and and reportedly because he was not not holding up to the schedule to the grueling schedule of presidential travel uh, somewhat ironic given that on the campaign trail he accused both his primary opponent uh, Jeb Bush and then later Hillary Clinton of being low energy and in poor health
0: this attack on iran is kind of the the heart of of what the whole trip was about trump didn't mention the fact that iran just had a popular election where the voters rejected the choice of the head of state. Well, Saudi Arabia, on the other hand, is an absolute monarchy where the people have no rights at all. As you've said, this sort of thing doesn't seem to bother Trump at all or even be worth mentioning.
3: And I don't think that we should be terribly surprised by that. I mean, he has said on the campaign trail, he said that, you know, he wasn't going to be the world's policeman. And I think that that You know, if you translate that, that's a code word for a coded way of saying that he does not support uh, international institutions, including institutions that uh, uphold human rights law, et cetera, et cetera. So that's not a big shock to me.
0: And Trump's main purpose, as you have said, was to publicize the deal that had already been made to sell the Saudis, I think it's $110 billion in new weapons. I guess he thinks more weapons will lead to peace in the Middle East. Is that the idea here? Uh, I mean, I'm not sure if anybody actually believes that. Um, but,
3: you know, I think that for, from my perspective, I think that Trump overall was really, really desperate for a win. And they thought that this trip would give them an opportunity to change the narrative. They left with their, an administration that's melted, melting down in front of our eyes embroiled in multiple mostly self-inflicted crises and i think that for trump the main thing was to get a concrete something concrete that he could point to and he could say i am not screwing up everything i touch
0: and this is the biggest the biggest arms deal in i guess the history of the world so that i guess that makes it really exciting and good
3: Yes. Um, Rand Paul, Senator Rand Paul, uh, announced today that he was going to ask for a vote for Congress to actually approve this sale. So I'm not sure exactly where we will end up with, the, with this sale in the end. One of the interesting aspects was also um, Jared Kushner, uh, one of Trump's lead henchmen uh, uh, reportedly intervened directly with U.S. defense contractors and asked them to lower the price on some of these weapon systems, which strikes me as a pretty concrete uh, violation of their America first um, credo, right? I mean, usually what you see is an administration negotiate with a, a foreign power to get an American company a better deal. And this reportedly was the Trump administration going to the American company and trying to get a better deal for the foreign power. So that's an aspect that didn't get a a ton of attention, but really did strike me as um, a deviation from, from the norm.
0: Excellent point. Just a couple of footnotes here. We know a little about what the Saudis were told to expect from Trump and how they should treat this president of the United States. What do we know about that? You know,
3: this is, it's, it's almost comical. I have a piece of the, the nation called Our Embarrassment and in Chief's International Trip is No Laughing Matter. And uh, in the beginning of this piece, I looked, I looked at these reports of the, the efforts that the international community is doing to, to make Trump comfortable and to deal with his famously short attention span and insatiable ego. So, There are diplomats sending cables back to their home governments, telling them that they need to keep everything short. Uh, They need to uh, compliment him on his electoral college victory
0: uh, and flatter his ego. So uh, Uh, one, one last thing. I understand that at the formal banquets, Trump does not eat the food that everybody else is served. He has his own <laughs> he has his own special diet. What is it?
3: Trump reportedly likes steak well done slathered in ketchup. So that will be uh, offered in all of these, <laughs> so he's going to these exotic locations and uh, and eating well done steak in with ketchup. It's a it's a little embarrassing, and I liken it to when you travel with a small child. You know, you bring familiar snacks and make sure that they have their blanket and everything because it's stressful to travel and to be away from the comforts of home. And it, it's um it's it's pretty sad when you step back and you think that. This is this is what it is being done for the the president of the United States. So I guess that that's what you get when you elect a game show host. <laughs> okay.
0: Joshua Holland, he wrote about Trump's travels for the nation.com. Thank you, Joshua. Thanks so much for having me, John. Finally, a word about this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast. That's our sister podcast at The Nation, hosted by the magazine's sports editor. This week, Dave talks about Robert Mueller, the new special counsel investigating Trump. Dave examines his work overseeing the investigation of the NFL. That's this week on Dave Zirin's new Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. Tune in every Tuesday at thenation.com slash of sports. start making sense, The Nation podcast is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles by Ernesto Orellano with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhoevel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.